Do you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Let's read God's Word together. We're continuing our study this morning of James, the book of James, and what we like to do here is we like to kind of read through it and take it as it comes to us, and you know, James hits harder some weeks than others. This is a hard one. <laughs> so we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and receive what the Lord has for us this morning. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would, um, you would speak to us through your servant James, that you would empower us to hear and to see with the eyes of the Spirit, that you would give us your Spirit to that end. Not only to see ourselves in this passage, O oh Lord, but we pray that you would give us your Spirit to see your Son in the passage, that you might heal us in all the ways you've intended to. We pray this in his name. Amen. You ever walked into a room and uttered these words? Okay, who started it? You ever said that? It's the question that has plagued parents, I think, since the beginning of time. Who started it? You ever been on the receiving end of that question? I can remember one time, very vividly, my dad coming home. I was probably in middle school. And um, somehow he found out that we were, it was in the summer, we were um, exiting a second story bedroom window, my bedroom actually, um, to get on the roof and to have BB gun wars on our roof. We were careful, we wore baseball helmets and ski goggles, just to make sure, you know, safety first, right? Um, so he found that out and he, um, he came to me and said, go to your room. And, um, you know, I think maybe to help him cool off, but also to make me sweat for a little while. But I knew what the first question would be when he got there. It would be, you know, who started this? Whose idea was it? And I remember thinking, you know, I have really no interest in reconstructing the events of what happened. My only interest is, is it pointing the finger at someone else who might take the blame instead of myself, right? And so that's what I did, but I know that that day it didn't work. None of the finger pointing worked. We all got in trouble, and I think I'm still just now recovering from what my dad did to me in the coming weeks. So if you've never been at the end of that question, who started it, you are this morning. That's where you sit this morning. James is walking into the church of Jesus Christ in chapter 4, and he's asking the question, whose fault is it? Here's another way the question goes. He says, when you fight, when you fight, and when you make a mess of your relationships, and when you hold grudges, and when you tear each other apart, 
when there is relational dysfunction among you, who's to blame? Who should shoulder the blame? How does it all get started? It's a question I want us to think about this morning, and I want to be careful even as we begin to clarify the goal. The goal really isn't to arrive at a fair answer to the question. The goal really for James is in your life and in my life and in the life of the church, the goal is real change. So if you remember early on, we said that James is writing for the sake of watching the church grow up, watching this church mature. And by definition, maturity requires change. So the real question that James is asking us this morning, where we sit as he kind of approaches us as a church and us as individuals is not so much, okay, who started it? The real question is, um, what must happen in your life and in the life of this community for real change to take place? And here is the basic contour, the basic outline of what James wants to tell us in the next 10 verses. He's going to say something like this, that our common conflict, that is our common bickering, our common inability to love one another well, it comes from a common source that can only be overcome by an uncommon grace. Our common bickering comes from a common source that can only be healed by a grace that is not at all common. And I want to unpack that this morning with these three questions in mind to move through, I hope, James's own mind in the text that the Lord has given him. Here's the first question that James wants to answer for us. It might go something like this. What is the basic problem that we need to confront? What is the basic problem behind our relational dysfunction? What's at, what's at the bottom of it all? As we peel back the layers, what's the problem? Number two, what can be done about it? This is the problem then, this is the diagnosis. What is it that can be done about it? And then finally, where does that leave us this morning as we leave? Where does it leave us from a practical standpoint? So first, what is the basic problem that James wants us to see? In other words, who started it? Who's to blame? And you'll notice for James, as he asked the, the question in verse 1, that question is purely rhetorical for him. He's really, really not interested in what we think at all. <laughs> He's not asking our thoughts on the matter. James, instead, is setting us up to diagnosis. And we have no idea about the specificity of the problem that he's addressing. In other words, when James says, uh, why are you fighting? Why are you quarreling? We have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> And so because we're not really sure, here's what I want you to do this morning. In the background of everything that James says from here on out, I want you to contextualize James's own words with a fight or conflict that is recent for you. I want you to pick something out that's, that's raw for you, <laughs> that's fairly recent. Okay, it could be a conflict in your marriage. It could be so, like a real frustration that you have in our church. Don't want to open up that can of worms this morning, maybe. <laughs> could be a frustration that you have with a Christian brother or sister that's just sort of put your relationship on edge. might be a fight that you're having with your parents. In order to give James's counsel some punch from here on out, I need you to go there imaginatively so that he can land it in your own life. James generalizes, okay, and so that should give us the room to be particular. Find something in your own life. With that in mind, here is the first place that James goes with his diagnosis. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
Your passions are at war within you. So the first thing that James is telling us this morning to do as we we hope for real change is we really have to stop pointing the finger at everyone else. To lay down our fingers. It's your own chaotic desires, he says, that deserve your attention. Not what anyone else is doing. He says the first thing that you have to do in conflict is you have to attend to your own heart. Now this is important. James is not saying that the other party is innocent, is he? He's not absolving anyone of their guilt. What he's saying is that you're not innocent. And you have to assume that. You're not innocent. It is our own self-centeredness. Look there at verse 3. He says to spend it on your own passions. That is to say it is our own self-centeredness that we have to begin with in conflict. You and I have to begin with the war that is taking place inside of our own hearts. With all that being said, I I need to offer an important caveat here. Here's the caveat. James 4 is a generalization about conflict in the church. And as generalizations go, there are outliers that fall beyond the scope of this particular conversation. And for those outliers, their own wisdom is required. For example, in this world, in our world, there are real victims whose hurt and conflict has absolutely nothing to do with the war that is going on inside themselves. There are times, and the Bible acknowledges these times, mostly in the Psalms, there are times when the blame really does fall entirely on someone else. And I want to say that because you might be sitting here this morning and you might be that person. You might be struggling to believe the truth that whatever happened to you was not your fault. And if that is you, in your case, of all that James says this morning, would you believe verse 6 for yourself? That God gives more grace. He gives more grace. And the promise of a psalm like Psalm 9, that the Lord himself is a refuge for for the oppressed. He is a stronghold for those who have been oppressed. So we can say in general, not in every case, but in general, in conflict, we have to begin with the assumption that we're the problem, that it's our own self-centeredness that burdens the conflict. And when our own self-centeredness burdens the conflict, we have to deal with it. We have to attend to our own hearts. And I think that if you're like, I don't know, reading the Bible um, or in any counseling situation, okay, you might expect that would happen. That that seems like general counsel, right? Attend to your own self-centeredness. What I don't think you would expect is where James goes next. Look with me in verse 4. James is going to peel back another layer. Okay? Verse 4, he says this. You adulterous generation, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You adulterous generation. So you see what James is doing? James is saying, what is behind our relational dysfunction? And he peels back a layer and he says, it's your self-centeredness. And then he says, don't stop there. What is behind your self-centeredness? Then James says, it's your adultery. It is marital betrayal. And that's where he wants us to go. That, he says, is the common source of our common bickering. The fact that we can't get along, that there is no peace. Not only that our desires are war within us, but that we have actually walked out on God. 
And if you're with me this morning and that seems like a huge leap to you, (laughs) to go from saying, hey, you need to deal with your self-centeredness to, oh wait, you need to deal with your marital infidelity, then I want you to see how how the whole thing is framed uh, starting in verse 5. Look at me at verse 5, how James frames the discussion. James writes, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? What is James saying? James is saying that God himself is jealous for you. That God wants every part of you for himself. Which is amazing because just a second ago, James said, your jealousy, your je- it's no good. <laughs> your jealousy is the problem. Your je- jealousy is the cause of the conflict. It's no good because you're jealous for things that aren't yours. But God's jealousy is good and it's right because you belong to him as a beloved bride. And so to back up for a second and just to put it all together, James is saying, look, the first thing you got to do is you got to stop pointing fingers in your conflict. The second thing you have to do is you have to go to the place where you have to say, it's me and it's my self-centeredness, but you have to get beyond that. You can't just arrive at the place that says, my bad, I'm selfish. We have to reckon with the fact that in all of our sin, all of our sin, God is deeply and personally involved, all of it. Um, Not as a judge, primarily, not as a friend, Not as a confidant, not as a counselor, but as a faithful and passionate spouse who is injured deeply when we cling to our own desires instead of him. I want to give you a quick example just to land this a little bit, okay? From the Bible, Psalm 51. It's a Psalm of David. In Psalm 51, a lot of people point to Psalm 51 and say, hey, here's the paradigmatic Psalm of what it takes for someone to change, okay? And in the psalm, Psalm 51.3, David writes this. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever laid before me. Okay? So David is doing what James is driving at. David is saying, wait, you know, who's to blame? David is raising his hand and saying, I did. I'm to blame. And if you know the story that has led up to this point, you know that that is a, like, that's an understatement, right? If you know David's story. You know, we're not talking about David going a few miles over the speed limit and getting caught in a speed trap. We're not talking about David muttering, you know, a bad word under his breath. We're talking about David abusing his power as the king of Israel. Remember what happened? He betrayed his friend Uriah. He stole Uriah's wife. And then he sent Uriah to the front lines and betrayed his friend even to his death. In many ways, it could be the story that James has in mind when James writes in verse 2 or 3, he says, you desire and do not have, and so you murder. That is David's story. You know, in Dante's version of hell, David belongs in the very pit of it for what he did to Uriah. And yet, this is what David writes in verse 4 of Psalm 51. Here's what he says. Against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What about Uriah? How can David say that? Didn't David sin against Uriah? See, what David is saying is that in this moment, he's saying, look, I know that I've hurt Uriah. I know that I've hurt Bathsheba. I know that the kingdom has almost fallen apart because of me. But more than all, all of that, at the deepest level of my guilt, 
at the deepest level of my failure and the pain that I've caused is this reality. I have betrayed you, O Lord, as my husband. O God, you have loved me, and I have walked out on you. And James says that's the place we got to go. We got to go to that place if change is to take place. We got to have to say God has loved us as a faithful husband, and we have not just been self-centered. We have walked out on Him and clung to other lovers. So the question is, what can be do, what can be done about it? Like, how does you know? So what do we where do we go from here? <laughs> and here's the real question I think that James is putting to us: What is it? that could fundamentally overcome covenant betrayal? What can fundamentally change the heart of a spouse who constantly wanders away? Thomas Aquinas, really old guy, lived about a thousand years ago. He once said this, this is great parenting advice as well. He said that affirmation has to be stronger than negation. Affirmation has to be stronger than negation. In other words, here's what he meant. The I love you of affirmation, it has to be stronger, it has to be louder than the quit doing that of negation. The I love you has to be louder than the stop doing that. God can't just say, hey, stop doing it. Stop walking out. Stop your self-centeredness. The I love you in our own hearts and minds has to be louder. So the question we're really asking is, what kind of affirmation can heal a wandering heart? And thankfully the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us in the story of one of its own prophets. You may know the story. It's the story of a man named Hosea. You may know that God calls Hosea to marry Gomer. And Gomer is, well, she's a prostitute. She's a woman of the night. Before you think that maybe her circumstances drove her to this, Gomer should garner no sympathy from us whatsoever. Gomer is shallow. She is duplicitous and she is self-centered. And Hosea marries her, but he marries her as more than just a show of pietistic obedience before God. The Bible says that Hosea marries her, and then it says he loves her. He loves her. And they have a son together. And then Gomer has two more sons, none of which are Hosea's. She makes a fool out of Hosea and herself because... Her new lover turns out to be just as barbaric and heartless as she is, and soon she becomes his prisoner. One commentator puts it like this. He says it's kind of like the prodigal son, except for this major difference. Unlike the prodigal son, Gomer never makes a move home. She never makes a move to come home. And so Hosea makes the move. Hosea leaves home and he chases Gomer and when he finds her, not only does he have to win her back, but he has to buy her back. He has to pay for her. So he gathers up all the cash she has and then he pays for part of her in kind. And even more, the Bible tells us that Homer's act of repossessing Gomer isn't just an act of control or power to say, hey, guess what? You're home and I was right. Now the Bible says this. God says to Hosea, go and love. Not possess. Go and love a woman who is loved by another man, an adulteress. And then God says, and love her as I, the Lord, love Israel, though they have resorted to other gods. And so Gomer returns. Gomer returns to live with Hosea. And the question is, do they live happily ever after? Well, we're never really told. Probably not without a lot of pain and counseling, for sure, right? 
But we are told this. The lib parable ends with the promise that Israel will return to the Lord. And Israel will seek him and love him in his goodness. In other words, what the parable is telling us is that Israel, the people of God, will find in God ultimately all the pleasures that they've been searching for everywhere else. They will return and find that all of that has been true all along in him. So it does have a happy ever after. We return to the question this morning, what kind of affirmation, what is it? What kind of affirmation can stop the wondering heart of an unfaithful spouse? And here's the answer. It's the affirmation that the Lord absolutely will not stop pursuing you. No matter how far you run, no matter whose arms you find yourself in this moment, God will not give up. The Lord will pursue you. He will give prodigiously to buy you out of your slavery. He already has in the person of his son. And not just to possess you, not just in the end to show you that he was right about you all along, but to love you to fullness. As James says, to love you jealously for himself. And that's what James means in verse 6 when James comes out and says, you've been unfaithful, I've been a betrayer, but the Lord gives more grace. For your betrayal, for my betrayal, for our cold-heartedness towards him, for our own self-centeredness, James's response is this, the Lord in your life right now is holding out even more grace for you. You haven't exhausted it yet. You haven't exhausted it. And so finally, where does that leave us this morning? Well, I think if you put ourselves in the place of Gomer's, which is where we are in the story, I think you could say this, it leaves us, uh, it leaves us loved, beloved by God, but not yet fully healed, right? I remember um, in college, my college pastor, I kind of came to him once, one, one time after he had, had spoken, and I said, you know, you're basically saying the same thing every week. Does everyone else know this too? He kind of laughed and said, you know, I do that on purpose. And he said, Chad, you'll, you'll find out that basically week after week, people, people essentially don't believe one thing. And he said, I, and including myself, we don't believe that God really loves us by grace alone. When we look at God and say, why is it that you love us? Why do you love us? And God says to us, just because, we just can't believe it's true. And so we have to return to that message over and over and over again. It's the message of Gomer and Hosea. It's the message behind every James passage and every New Testament writing. That God is after his people to have them for himself. He yearns jealously. He craves you. So what can be done about it? Well, we're not at the end of when it comes to change. Here's what we've said so far. Got to stop the finger pointing, right? Point it back at yourself. You have to make the move from seeing it as your own self-centeredness past that to see it really as covenant betrayal, that, that God has been at the, at the center of all of it, and you have relational wounds to deal with him. And then finally, you have to hear the affirmation of God's love for you as it comes in verse 6, but he gives more grace. And here's the end of James's counsel to us this morning. The last thing we need to hear is this, we have to repent. In the context of that, we have to repent. If we're going to change, we have to repent. And essentially, that is the gist of what James is saying in verses 6 through 10. Okay? It's the core of the imagery in verses 8 through 9, so I'll, I'll read it to you again. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I think the word repentance you know, often gets sort of a dour reputation. It's probably well-deserved, what you say. 
some dour language. It comes, it comes straight from the Old Testament. And I want to end this morning with just two practical questions for you as you leave. The first is this. So what is repentance? What is it then? And then finally, does it work? What is repentance and does it work? First, what is repentance? Let me begin by saying what it's not, okay? Repentance is not simply an apology. Repentance is not going to someone that you've wounded and simply saying, I'm sorry, that's not repentance. It's an apology, it's nice, could be a part of repentance, that's not repentance. Secondly, repentance is not simply a promise to change and do better next time, okay? It's not simply saying, look, I messed up this time, I'm sorry, but I promise I really want to do better next time. That's not really repentance either. Both are important, they're not the heart. At the heart of repentance, as C.S. Lewis says, at the heart of repentance is a rebel laying down his weapons and saying this, I'm not going to fight anymore. It is a rebel laying down his weapons and saying, I am not going to fight anymore. Repentance is bringing yourself before God and said, oh Lord, here's my anger. Here's my desire for control. Here's my lust. Here's my pride. Here are all the weapons that I've used for so long to struggle against you. I lay them down. I don't want to fight anymore. That's what James means by being humbled. Humble yourself before the Lord. He's saying, lay down your weapons. Lay down your weapons. And it sounds so easy to say, you know, well, why why don't we do it more often? (laughs) Repentance is really easy in theory and extremely painful in practice. I once heard Joe Novenson, who's a pastor in in Chattanooga, say it like this. He said, repentance hurts like heaven, but it feels like hell. Repentance hurts like heaven, but it feels like hell. And then he said this, but remember, heaven wants you to change, and hell doesn't care if you do or not. Repentance feels, hurts like heaven, but it feels like hell. It is painful to lay down your weapons when you've been clinging to those weapons for so long. It's the only way of change. Lay down your weapons. Number two, does it work? Does it work? Well, look at me at the final verse for us this morning at verse 10. Let's just read that one more time briefly. James writes, humble, before, humble yourselves before the Lord. That is, lay down your weapons. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will do what? What does it say? He will exalt you. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God would exalt us? You know, really practically, what does that mean? Well, we have a pattern of what that means in the life of Jesus that I want us just to look at for a moment. One of the earliest writings in the New Testament is found embedded in Philippians. It's a hymn that Paul records for himself in the letter, the Philippians 2 hymn. And in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, who is God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Then Paul tells us that being found in human form, he humbled himself, there's the language, by becoming obedient even to the point of death, that is, even to death on a cross. Okay? Then Paul writes this, therefore God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one of the things that Paul is telling us is that God himself knows what it's like to obey the command to humble himself. That God knows the experience himself of what it is to empty himself, even to the pain of death. God knows what it's like. And that's amazing. 
But it's not really what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see what exaltation meant for Jesus. So you see, when God the Father exalted Jesus in Philippians, it meant that all of his emptiness that he gave up was restored. Everything that Jesus himself was, had given up in humility is given back to him. And not only that, not only was everything returned, but more was given in its place. Because when God the Father exalted God the Son and Jesus returned to his rightful place at the throne of God on the right hand, he not only returned alone, he returned with you. You see that? You are the more grace that God filled out his promise for the Son. And there is still more grace for you this morning. Lay down your weapons. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does that mean? It means that he can restore your emptiness in whatever form it's taking right now. He can heal a dead marriage. He can make a heart that is cold and apathetic towards him. He can make it burn again. (laughs) He can bring peace into your relational dysfunction. He can change us as as a church, as a people from the inside out. Lay down your weapons. Lay them down. And here, once again, the affirmation of the God who yearns jealously for you. Here's what he says to you. Wherever you are, that he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of your servant James, as much as they might sting. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to lay down our weapons, help us to know what they are. O God, that you would heal us from the inside out. Um, Lord, we pray that we would know that there is more grace for us still yet. Change us, we pray, Father, even if it hurts like heaven. We pray that you would do it for the sake of your Son, for your glory, and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.